What's up, No Man's Land listeners? It's Audrey Gelman, CEO and co-founder of The Wing. Are you all caught up on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's first season? A new season from the Emmy Award-winning series premieres on December 5th, and I can't wait to watch. Now I'll turn it over to our host, Alexis Ko, who certainly knows a thing or two about women who are too bad for your textbooks. Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to Episode 3 of No Man's Land. Ida B. Wells was the most famous Black woman during her lifetime, which is remarkable because America was really doing its best to silence, reduce, and impoverish Black women. And yet, Ida refused to do just about everything that was expected of her. In the 1880s, when a train conductor tried to remove Ida from a car he claimed was reserved for white women, she bit and fought him. And when that didn't work, she sued. When she won her suit against the railroad, they printed a headline, Darky Damsel Wins Suit. When Ida married in the 1890s, she was expected to take her husband's name. But instead, she hyphenated, using Wells Barrett at a time when few women did that. And she continued to publish under her maiden name. As for the rest of her domestic duties... Ida B. Wells, even after she married, would sit there with her tea and everything, waiting for her husband, who was an attorney and a newspaper man and owner of a newspaper, to come home and cook for her, you know? And it just keeps going. To fight injustice leveled at the Black community at every turn, Ida helped found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. When white suffragists told her to march at the back of the line, she went straight to the front, and she organized one of the first black women's clubs to fight for enfranchisement. Every act was singular, swelling with foresight and bravery. Her militancy began in Memphis. You've been listening to Miriam DeCosta Willis, who edited Ida's Memphis Diaries, because that's the story I'm going to tell today. You know, there were no models for her. And she realized that it was the, the movement of the future. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who are too bad for your textbooks. I'm your host, Alexis Coe, the in-house historian at The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who broke the rules, who history forgot about, ignored, or got totally wrong. At the age of just 29 years old, Ida B. Wells experienced a revelation that changed the course of her entire life and put her life at risk in a racist southern city she threw into upheaval. Although you'd be hard-pressed to find a trace of it today, where it actually happened in Memphis, Tennessee. The Ida B. Wells um, historical marker is downtown at on Beale Street. And Beale Street was, you know, a hub of black businesses and activities and bars and that sort of thing when Ida B. Wells was here in Memphis. Wendy Thomas, a journalist in Memphis, is describing the Beale Street that Ida knew. It had everything. Churches, beauty salons, dentists, tailors, and the free speech, an anti-segregation newspaper Ida co-owned and wrote for. But then an urban renewal program in the 1960s radically changed the historic district. And what's left is, well... I believe it's next to a Wet Willie's bar, which just 
feels almost disrespectful, you know what I mean, to have the only marker in Memphis to Ida B. Wells, just feet from where you can get, you know, like gallon-sized margaritas. I've been on Beale Street a bunch of times, and I'd never noticed it, which is pretty crazy because as a historian, I live for that kind of thing. So we made a specific trip to go see it and found it's not really on Beale Street. It's, it's right off it. On this street, really improbably, is the only marker that acknowledges Ida B. Wells lived here and had a really seminal moment. And so on one side, facing at the moment bird scooters and the FedEx Forum is the Ida B. Wells marker and it says 1862 to 1931, Ida B. Wells crusaded against lynchings in Memphis and the South. In 1892, while editor of the Memphis Free Speech located in this vicinity, she wrote of the lynching of three black businessmen. As a result, her newspaper office was destroyed and her life threatened. That is a very mild way of putting it. A note before we move on. We're about to cover a very dark period in American history in somewhat graphic detail. Thomas Moss, one of the three unnamed businessmen vaguely referred to on Ida's marker, had been the president of the People's Grocery, a cooperative he and ten other black Memphians co-owned, including a pastor and a carpenter. I'm Michelle Duster, the great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells, and Thomas Moss was a friend of my great-grandmother's. He was well-known. He was a leader in the community. Thomas Moss and his wife Betty were Ida's closest friends in Memphis. On the weekends, they taught Sunday school at Avery Chapel. They became good enough friends so that she became the godmother of his daughter. And Ida and Moss saw each other almost every day. Moss was the free speech's mailman, a prestigious job that took him all over the city. So when he got to Ida's work, he'd bring her mail and word on the street. He knew what was going on and I guess would even give her some tips about different um, news. (laughs) So they were kind of like family. And that's significant. Ida was born a slave in Holly Springs, Mississippi, emancipated a few months later, but by 16, she was an orphan. Her parents and infant brother died in a yellow fever outbreak. She took care of some of her younger brothers and sisters, and it was a struggle. Trying to make ends meet, moving from boarding house to boarding house. So it's easy to imagine how much the Moss family meant to her. Thomas Moss had been the president of the People's Grocery, a cooperative he and 10 other black Memphians co-owned, including a pastor and a carpenter. And the grocery was located in an area outside of the Memphis city limits, in an increasingly black neighborhood known as The Curve, which already had a grocery run by a white man named William Barrett. It was considered to be a way to have self-reliance and you know, build equity in your own neighborhood. But the guy who owned the the white-owned grocery store obviously viewed it as competition that needed to be eliminated. After a series of conflicts, Barrett showed up at the People's Grocery with armed men, ready to take out the competition, and fired the first shots. The grocery store was vandalized. Every single thing in the store was was taken it was destroyed. I mean, it was, there were multiple levels of violation that occurred. The People's Grocery tried to defend itself. They had guns, too, which they dropped immediately upon realizing that some of Barrett's men were actually lawmen. 
but by then it was too late. Two white deputies were shot. One died and the other lost his eye. It's unclear if Moss was even in the store at the time, but the men who came to arrest him, among many others, weren't interested in the details. Judge Julius DeBose, a founding member of the Tennessee Ku Klux Klan, was assigned to Moss's case, and over the next few days consistently denied attempts by Moss's wife and lawyer to visit him. And then a mob of about 75 white men showed up at the jail. On March 9th, 1892, Thomas Moss, um, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart were lynched. Um, They were taken out of a jail cell and um, taken over to an empty field that was near a train track. Um, They were shot, they were mutilated, they were murdered. It was a horrific act, and one that was not unfamiliar in the South. Between 1880 and 1930, approximately 3,220 black people, most of whom were black men, were reportedly lynched. Just try to imagine that your really good friends were murdered, and you knew that they were not criminals in any kind of way. Memphis's largest daily, the Appeal Avalanche, praised the lynching as, quote, one of the most orderly of its kind ever conducted likely because they had some help. In Ida's autobiography, she writes that there is a strong belief among us that the criminal court judge himself was one of the lynchers. And that's probably why there was no sign of a break-in. Judge DuBose had his own set of keys, and if he didn't bring them, all he had to do was knock. You know, nobody ever went to trial. Nobody ever was charged with any crime. So it it was just a well-known fact that the people who committed those murders were still out in the community. Creditors shut down the people's grocery and found someone willing to take it off their hands for one-eighth of its value. The buyer was William Barrett, the white grocer. And just like that, he restored his monopoly. Because that's what it was always about, Ida realized. Before Frederick Douglass or W.E.B. Du Bois would argue that economic terrorism was the root of lynching, it was about money and what it could buy. She put two and two together and figured out that it was economic. These were upstanding citizens, so everybody in the community knew that it was basically a form of terrorism. It's harder to control people if they actually (laughs) have the means to take care of themselves. Ida wrote that Moss's death opened my eyes to what lynching really was, an excuse to get rid of Negroes who are acquiring wealth and property and thus keep the race terrorized. So if somebody's intimidating your friends and literally murdering them, I'm sure she was aware that if she spoke out, then her life would be in danger as well. If Thomas Moss wasn't safe from white terrorists, who in the black community was? Definitely not Ida, an unmarried, five-foot-nothing black woman in the Jim Crow South. But she wasn't scared. Quite the opposite. The murder of Thomas Moss and his co-workers made her realize that every single case of lynching in the South had to be investigated. And that's what she set out to do. Ida wrote after Moss's death, There is therefore only one thing left that we can do save our money, and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. 
and Black Memphians listened. About 20% fled the city while others made plans to. Every time word came of people leaving Memphis, Ida wrote, we who were left behind rejoiced. Business was at a standstill. Keep up the good work, she told her readers. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place. This time, we'll hear from one of my own colleagues, Shuchi Sharma. She's the head of gender intelligence at SAP, a role that ensures we practice as we preach. Even as a child, Shuchi knew that women often weren't treated the same way as men. I was spending a summer in a very hot place, well, in India, watching Bollywood movies. And every single movie after movie was showcasing men dominating women. And I was just enraged. It was just not right. And that was a very sort of pivotal moment that shaped my thinking the rest of my life. Shuchi saw that sexism didn't just impact personal relationships. It also impacted the professional adult world. Now, at SAP, she goes out of her way to subvert gender-based assumptions we had silhouettes of people we could use to create graphic images. And every PowerPoint I saw was nothing but male silhouettes. So I started using all the female silhouettes and calling them CEOs. People noticed. I mean, puzzled looks. But over time, generally more accepted. SAP is committed to making the world run better and helping women like Shuchi help advance true gender equality. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. Everything that came across Ida B. Wells' desk at the Free Speech confirmed her theory that lynching was a form of terrorism, usually based in economics. And so she sat there, where she and Moss had seen each other on nearly a daily basis, and used the only weapon she had, her words. You know, she's kind of a patron saint of female journalists, particularly um, female journalists of color. And knowing her connection to Memphis and what it was like for her to do journalism in Memphis, it's just particularly empowering. Wendy Thomas thinks Ida's views may seem obvious today, but in 1892, her editorials were literally the most provocative thing anyone, man or woman, could have said. Ida took a point of view, which doesn't seem controversial now, but maybe was then, which is, yeah, lynching is really a bad thing. Um, and not having due process for these people who have been accused is horrible. And the motivations behind some of these lynchings are patently false. Ida forced white businesses and landlords in Memphis to recognize just how much they depended on revenue from the very same community they harassed and murdered with abandon. Within a month, the Appeal Avalanche, the very same paper which praised the lynchings as orderly, announced the city's court commissioners, while not seeking criminal charges, 
concluded the lynching was, quote, ill-advised and set aside a year's allowance for Betty Moss. They hoped, though they wouldn't deign to say so, that this would quiet the free speech. But it had the opposite effect. Ida was not only encouraged, she was obsessed. You've got a black woman, you know, daring to speak a very inconvenient truth to white people who don't want to acknowledge the very real brutality and cruelty and inhumanity that they're displaying in these in these lynchings. Ida studied the Chicago Tribune's annual lynching statistics, but she needed more than numbers. She had to talk to people in the South, and so she traveled to nearby sites of lynching parties where victims had been shot, hanged, castrated, and burned. She often found the victims' families through newspaper articles and wanted to see if their accounts matched what the papers had printed. In Tanika, Mississippi, the Associated Press had reported that, quote, a big burly brute was lynched because he had raped the seven-year-old daughter of the sheriff. But when Ida went to Tanika, she learned that the girl was actually 17, not seven, which is a pretty big journalistic leap by the AP if they'd ever investigated the story in the first place. And the young woman hadn't reported a rape Her father, the sheriff, had discovered her in the man's cabin, and the lawman, rather than pressing charges, led a mob against him. There was never a question of it not being rape, and that's a detail Ida kept finding. And rape didn't necessarily mean sexual assault either. It could be no more than a suggestive look or an imagined one. This is um, from an editorial that Ida B. Wells wrote um, in 1892. So she says, Eight Negroes lynched since the last issue of the free speech. Three were charged with killing white men and five with raping white women. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. If Southern men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and a conclusion will be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Yeah, that's like a an epic level of shade. Based on hundreds of cases, Ida came to an obvious conclusion. By and large, sexual relationships between white women and black men were consensual. But If the relationship was discovered, the black man was almost always murdered because, according to white men, he was a rapist. And that was whether a white woman had accused him of it or not. So it's, do you really want to go there? You know what I mean? Like, do you want this work? Because I can give you this work. Ida was calling everyone out. White men were lying. White women they claimed to be defending were in fact complicit. Given the stakes, the white women were likely the ones instigating a relationship. So if they kept using, as Ida called it, the old threadbare lie, she was going to keep reminding them of that reality. This was not going to go unchallenged. You know, after this editorial uh, ran, the Commercial Appeal reproduced part of it. And I think this part right here that they published is very telling. And so this is what the Commercial Appeal published about Ida B. Wells' editorial, quote, the black wretch who had written that foul lie should be tied to a stake at the corner of Main and Madison Streets. A pair of tailor's shears used on him 
and he should then be burned at a stake. I've read this over and over again, and each time it is just as shocking. In response to words printed in a small black newspaper, a major white newspaper openly called for the writer to be publicly tortured and murdered. Talk about a lonely existence, having to chart your own path with content that you knew was going to make you even more of a target for violence in a community that already displayed an incredible appetite for that. The editorials rarely had bylines, and there were so few women journalists at the time, especially women of color, it never occurred to the white newspaper that Ida's editorial had been written by a woman. And so it's a heat. They think this is a man, right? Because a woman couldn't have been that bold. Right after she decided to get a pistol to protect herself because, you know, she knew that her life was in danger if she spoke out. Michelle Duster, Ida's great-granddaughter, doesn't know if she ever had cause to use it. But that's likely because she was out of town when the white Memphians came after her. A group of people uh, decided to destroy her printing press and promised that whomever was involved in saying that would be killed. They found Reverend Taylor Nightingale, a former owner of the paper, and pistol-whipped him until he recanted the editorial. J.L. Fleming, her partner and co-owner, had left the city upon threat of being castrated and hanged. And when they learned that Ida, a woman, had indeed written the editorials, their tone didn't soften. She received telegrams urging her to stay away, that white Memphians were stalking the train station, awaiting her return. She never returned to Memphis ever in her entire life after that. Ida B. Wells quit the South, but not the cause. In fact, driving her out only exposed Ida's ideas to a wider audience, who threw support behind her. In New York, suffragists and club women raised money for her anti-lynching campaign, which she waged from Chicago. She was invited on a speaking tour in Great Britain, lecturing in packed halls and churches. The Duke of Argyle visited the South to investigate her claims, and sure enough, when he neared Memphis, six black men were lynched. An Ohio newspaper observed, if Ida B. Wells had desired anything to substantiate the charges against the South, nothing more serviceable could have come to hand. It's hard to measure the effect of Ida's work, but in 1899, lynchings had dropped to 107. When Moss was lynched seven years earlier, it had peaked at 235. For a woman who lives such an incredible life, Ida has not received the recognition she deserves. Women, and especially women of color, have been marginalized in our collective memory. But in Ida's case, that's changing. Thanks to the efforts of her family, who published her work and helped raise funds for a monument, But that's in Chicago. What's truly egregious is that Memphis is full of monuments to Confederates, to white supremacists, large imposing sculptures, not historical markers that are easily missed by a historian who is always eager to find them. When Wendy Thomas worked at the Commercial Appeal, she had to pass a monument of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was, among other things, a slave trader on her way to work. 
when the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest um, was up on a main thoroughfare in Memphis, the most direct way to work at the Commercial Appeal would have been for me to drive right past it. But I took a detour because it was an affront to have to see that. It was a big middle finger to me as a black person in a mostly black city that the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan was towering down on this horse. Representation matters, especially in a city like Memphis, where progress can feel glacial. To know that Ida B. Wells was a short brown woman like me, speaking this incredible power, you know, is inspiring. And so when I'm writing stories or facing a lot of backlash for things I'm saying, challenging the status quo, suggesting ways it could be completely dismantled, I take solace in knowing that I'm not alone and knowing that if Ida could do it, then I can do it. Monuments don't teach history, but they do serve as a reminder that women like Thomas could use. So if I'd driven past a monument of Ida B. Wells every day on my way to work at a newspaper that was mostly white and run by white men, I think it might have made me even more outspoken than I was. And maybe maybe somewhere in there lies the disincentive to do that, right? And so maybe the people who could write a check today for that monument don't want any more outspoken women journalists in town. They don't want some of those basic inequities and exposing the people who profit from those inequities. Why would they want that? Like, that's not in their best interest. And so maybe making her invisible in some ways or barely visible, that makes sense for them. That's a good thing for them. But that's getting harder and harder. All over the country, women have embraced the legacy of Ida B. Wells. And even in Memphis there's perceptible change. I saw Miriam DeCosta Willis on my way out of the city, and she had good news. By the way, we have a monument that's going up here in Memphis, and I'm working on the committee, and I have written the bios of Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, who were militant suffragists to replace one of the Confederate monuments. I want to hug you. So in spite of the administration and all that's going on nationally, we are marching on, you know? (laughs) Yep. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Coe. Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesereau composed the music and her band Glasser wrote the theme, with additional music from the band Lullatone. Special thanks to Wendy Thomas, Miriam DeCostas-Willis, and Michelle Duster, Cynthia Pemmental, Leela Day, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Dina Kleiner, Melanie Altarescu, Laya Garcia, and Diva Pardue. To learn more about Ida B. Wells, read books by our guests. The Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells, edited by Miriam DeCostas-Willis, and Ida in Her Own Words, edited by Michelle Duster. If you're interested in women's focus workspace and a place to hang in New York, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, or London, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at www.the-wing.com. Next week, we look at the women who fought to convince the world that homosexuality was not a mental illness. Thanks for listening.